You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash openmind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And with all the recent quite critical talk about books and their authors and publishers' respective responsibility for the truthfulness and accuracy of their content, and I suppose of their merchandising, it's probably high time for us to face the issue head on once again here. We did so in a 1978 Open Mind conversation, and again in 1985 with my old friend Sam Vaughan, then the much-honored editor-in-chief at Doubleday. Again in the 1990s with Charles Scribner, Jr., of the fourth Scribner's generation to head their distinguished publishing house since it was founded by his great-grandfather in 1846. And, of course, in 2008 with Michael Corder, the brilliant longtime but ever-youthful editor-in-chief at Simon & Schuster. Always the issue has been the same, truth in publishing. And who today could be better placed or prepared to parse the issue once again than Sam Tannenhaus, the editor of the Sunday New York Times Book Review. Twice my open mind conversations here with Sam have been about the Times Book Review itself, and twice they have been about his own quite extraordinary Random House volume on The Death of Conservatism, in which my guest deemed the fate of conservatism in America to be of almost novelistic and dramatic interest. Well, those latest programs were two years ago. And since he thought then that the extreme conservatives he had called hardliners, who would tear down and destroy rather than conserve and build, had gotten the wars they wanted, at home the culture wars, and abroad in Iraq, today I want to go off topic just a bit and first ask my guest if he still thinks those hardliners were repudiated in the 2008 election with the emergence of a president, quote, who seems more thoroughly steeped in the Burkean principles of conservation and correction than any significant figure on the right today. What do you say about that, Sam? That's a little off base to start with. Well, well we, can, we can start there, Dick. Great to be back in your program. Um, what I said in that book was that there was no doubt in my mind that the Republican Party, and particularly its conservative base, would be stockpiling ammunition for the 2010 election, and that's what they did. And that book was really about kind of the philosophical war within uh, the Republican Party and conservatism at large, and I think it's still being fought. Uh, Now it seems to be centered in the House of Representatives, where we have a Speaker of the House, John Boehner, who seems a more traditional Republican, against more ideologically driven Tea Party uh, representatives and the base of the party, which is now in that camp, as they've been in the past. You know, 1964, when Barry Goldwater was nominated, 1976, and then 80, when they rallied around Ronald Reagan. So the issue for the party, I think, will be whether they can reach the internal compromise they need, because they're looking ahead now to the 2012 election, and select a candidate, a nominee, that the broad part of the country uh, will find acceptable to run against a candidate, an incumbent president, 
who's a very good uh, campaigner, we sometimes forget. Um, Barack Obama will not be easy to defeat. And uh, he seems to be moving or gathering steam in the center, the middle of the country. And that's what our presidential candidates, nominees, always need to win. Well, what about that broad base of the public? Do you see it any different now than you did maybe a half dozen years ago? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, it's odd because the readings we get, Dick, are so self-contradictory. Even if you go to the Tea Party, not the activists, but my paper did a poll right before the last election, talking to people who identified themselves as sympathizers with the Tea Party movement. And they were all in favor, or many of them in favor, of small government and independence and libertarianism until you ask them about Social Security and Medicare. And I think we're seeing that yet again. What, what do we find now that uh, someone like Paul Ryan, probably the most articulate young Republican now, the budget uh, head of the budget committee there, came up with a very ambitious proposal for cutting the deficit. What, what does he find when he has to meet with constituents and tell them how... Medicare is going to change, or that he wants to privatize Social Security. There's a lot of anxiety. So I think the rhetoric may have shifted somewhat to the right uh, from the, the moment I wrote out of. But I'm not sure the actual political sentiments are so different. You don't think then, obviously, that the nation is itself at root more conservative than the election in the first place of Barack Obama indicated. Well, what I thought then and wrote then was that um, Obama's politics might be a little bit left of, this, of center, just as Ronald Reagan's had been somewhat right of center. And at the time of the election, the public didn't really care. Um, they weren't so concerned about ideological or philosophical differences. They wanted someone they thought they could trust in the White House. And I think when it comes down to cases, it probably hasn't changed all that much. You think, still think he's a little left of center? Um, well, it's hard to say because so much of our political conversation is exactly that, a conversation. I don't think the policies are, you know, deviate from mainstream American policies, which over the course of decades have kind of cycled up and down, a little left, a little right, or the famous remark of FDR's Franklin Roosevelt, I'm a little bit to the left of center, and now someone look at Roosevelt and see him as some kind of socialist or something. I think most of our politics does occur in, in the center. I think that's where he is. Um, is he farther left than some others, than Republicans? Probably. But um, again, uh, a lot of that uh, comes down to language and rhetoric. And in the end, when it comes down to political choices, the, uh, those he's made and the choices he's offering the public seem to me the mainstream ones we're really used to. Well, you'll forgive me for having started out that way. Sure. Not fair because <laughs> I said we were going to talk about books. Uh, let's talk about them. Let's talk about this question of who's responsible and do you look for the truth in books. So many editors have said and publishing people have said, no, I'm just putting out what the writer has to say. I don't have very much more to do with it once I've guessed that he's going to make me a buck. What do you think? Well, I think, Dick, uh, that's probably true. I mean, publishers would tell you that in their contracts, I have had contracts myself, there are clauses that say the 
the author is responsible. I'll point out, too, I work at a newspaper, as you know, the New York Times. We don't have fact checkers at the New York Times. Only the New York Times magazine has fact checkers. Newspapers don't have them. We depend on reporters. Book publishers don't have them. They depend on their authors. One of the differences is, because this question will uh, come up to me, people will say, well, here we have an author like Greg Mortensen, whose Three Cups of Tea is the latest controversy because some of the, um, he's accused of having fabricated or compressed some of the uh, events and incidents in, in the book. And I say, well, you know, this happens in memoirs. There's a long history of this going all the way back to St. Augustine and his memoirs. They'll say, but, but if he worked for the Times, he wouldn't hold on to his job. And I say the difference is if you work for the Times, you're part of a larger news gathering operation, which is telling readers, and as well as we can, backing that up with the journalism we publish, that every effort has been made to convey, to find out the literal truth and then con convey it in, in a way that the reader can understand and appreciate. But an author is kind of a sole proprietor. Even if a publishing house has brought his book out, that's one book the publisher has is, is got. So R Random House or Simon & Schuster or Scribner, the various publishers you've mentioned, are not accountable, I don't think, in the same way a newspaper is. The author doesn't really work for them. They have a contract with him for a particular book. And so it makes sense to me that a publisher would say, we shouldn't be blamed for this. Now, it should be closely and carefully edited. Should editors raise questions? Absolutely. I'll tell you, there's a great, wonderful essay uh, the great journalist Michael Kinsley wrote, I think in the 1980s when he was editing The New Republic. He was pointing to the kind of circular problem in all fact-checking in the, in the printed word. He says, there are no fact-checkers at newspapers, which is true. Editors. Editors, yes, but Aren't no fact-checkers. Are they fact-checkers? Um, to the extent we can, yes. But, uh, but, I mean, but let me uh, okay. finish. Go, okay. go back so to says, the Well, there are no fact-checkers in, in newspapers. So a newspaper article may have errors in it. Let's, let's just accept that. Even with editors doing their darndest, their best, to ferret out every mistake, they may not catch them. So I have a, a newspaper story that's printed. Now in the era of corrections, we catch up as much as we can, and the newspaper will carefully print a correction. If it's a r r serious uh, breach, then there'll be an editor's note that, in effect, um, apologizes and explains what went wrong. But nonetheless, there's a fair amount of journalism out there every day that's not pristine. You know, there's uh, something people say all the times about my newspaper, that if the Times writes a story about a subject you really know about, you'll always find something in it that's wrong, right? You're nodding, you know this is true. Okay, so Kinsley said, so you begin with a newspaper. That newspaper story may end up being a source that's cited in an unfact-checked book. So, for instance, in my biographies, I, draw on, uh, I write historical biographies, and uh, Whitaker Chambers, now William Buckley, and I draw on a lot of journalism from the period for detail, for color, for atmosphere. So the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Herald Tribune in those days, Time Magazine, the New Yorker, whatever. So I will cite that journalism that itself may not be quite accurate, then someone may come along, write a newspaper story that 
cites something I wrote that was itself based on something that might not have been thoroughly accurate. In other words, there's this kind of endless cycle of possible mistakes that get made. Now, that's in the world of very carefully researched and vetted books. But now, we're really talking about the world of memoir. That's where the questions are being raised. Memoir is a very different form. It's become the dominant literary form of our era. Um, it emerged in the late 1980s with uh, Frank McCourt's book, um, late 80s, early 90s, uh, Angela's Ashes, and Mary Carr's book, um, The Liars Club, set in Texas. These were the two memoirs that, m more than others probably, set us on the path. Tremendous literary success, these much acclaimed works. And they were probably not subjected in their moment to the scrutiny memoirs are today because it was understood that a, the author of a memoir did take some license. I mean, the word memoir does derive from memory, and we know memories are not exact. So there was an assumption, I think, at that point, and earlier periods of when great memoirs were written, going back to the 19th century or before, that, yeah, the author was manipulating the material in some way. Now what has happened is that the memoir has become almost a kind of uh, scriptural text for many of us. So we take these, we read these stories with a kind of seriousness or a, a kind of credence, a will to believe and, and have faith in them that maybe readers didn't at a different period and it's become more of an issue than it had been. Now, before. let me understand that, Sam. Read them with a faith in them, I would think it would be just the opposite. Read them, and I think that's what some of the people at this table have said. Everybody knows, not that there's no truth in advertising, because we all know that, but there's no truth in books. There's no truth in publishing. It is a point of view. No, Our readers don't anticipate that we have fact-checked this material, but which is it? What do you think a reader understands? And, and that's the key question, is the reader. Uh, I think you're very distinguished guests were right in their moment. I mean, certainly it's true that a reader that ought to, I mean, not to you know, use the imperative uh, voice here, but that one would expect readers to understand that any book they read is in some sense manipulated by the author. The author is manipulating material in some way or other. That if it were the unvarnished Un unorganized sequence of facts, it would not be interesting to read. It would lose its narrative force and power. Even as a biographer, whereas I don't make anything up, I try to organize the material I'm writing in such a way, introduce information at certain points that I think uh, uh, that will correspond to what a reader expects in the narrative. In that sense, the publishers you interviewed were absolutely right, and I think they would repeat that today, and I would agree with them. I think maybe what's changed, Dick, is the relationship readers have to books. And I'm not quite sure why that's the case. Something that really struck me at the time of the biggest recent scandal or controversy, the million little pieces by James Fry, if you remember that. Right. There were readers who wanted to sue him. Do you remember this? It was going to be a class action suit. They had been lied to, they thought. And it makes you wonder 
what kind of authority readers are conferring on authors. I mean, author is, you know, the root uh, word behind authority that maybe readers of an earlier period didn't so much. There's a very interesting thing Christopher Lash wrote in his great book, The Culture of Narcissism, uh, published in 1979, I think it was. Great book about the, what he saw as the decline or decadence of contemporary culture. And at that time, the best-selling books were self-help books. He was fascinated by those. And Lash was a brilliant sort of historian, as you know, intellectual historian and cultural historian. Been a student of Richard Hofstadter, mm-hmm. as you were. And um, he made the point that many of the people who seemed to be reading those particular books weren't necessarily reading other books. That is, these were not readers of fiction or poetry or of the classics necessarily, you know, the great Greek histories or of Shakespeare. They were reading these books for a specific purpose. And in an odd way, even though they were not what my publishers might normally define as big readers, they were investing a kind of faith in the information, the truth that these authors would deliver. I think, and Lash, implied, I don't remember whether he actually said this, but he implied something else, which is that if you're reading a self-help book to learn how, how you might improve your life, then you're someone on whom the great life lessons of a Tolstoy or a Dickens are probably either will be lost on or you won't have the patience for. And I think what's happened is an analogous shift in the way people approach memoirs. Because memoirs, in a sense, have have replaced um, the kind of autobiographical novel that used to be so widely read. It's sort of the the goodbye Columbus kind of first novel. There's a remark Gore Vidal, uh, who was so witty, made many years ago, where he referred to first novels of a certain type, this direct relationship to you. We call them Last Summer at Rutgers, right? <laughs> in which the author is essentially telling you about his or her own life. Only it's presented to you as fiction. All right? And the complaint, the critical complaint in those days was, you remember, was, oh, this doesn't seem invented enough. It seems too literal a transcription of the author's life. Where's the imagination and invention we expect in a first novel? First novels have, in essence, become now memoirs. That's how authors sell their books, new authors. Um, It's very hard to, I mean, sell to a publisher, get a publisher to bring out a a first novel or a short story collection. There are very few of them published. But the memoir is easier? The memoir is much easier. And so what do you do? You say, all right, I've got this thing. It is based really on my life and the things I did. Only I've tried to make it read well. You see, and, and so now our objection is that these memoirs seem too fictionalized. Our concern is just the reverse of what it used to be. So what I'm saying is it's kind of a convergence of different forces uh, in the culture, in the society. Reading habits, publishing habits, the ambitions of authors have put us in this odd place where we have many writers who can achieve success by telling a story that's assumed to be true. And then the question arises, how true? Or how much in it might not really be true? 
And now that can be an interesting reading dynamic. And I think that's what uh, your previous guests were really saying, is that the reader kind of has all that in mind as he or she reads. But let's say it's somebody who's not going to read a whole lot of other books, who's not going to read novels, um, who's not going to go to much theater and see where the lines between the real and the illusory are kind of carefully crossed and tangled, well then maybe you really think somebody's telling you the literal truth all the time. Well, I can't help but think back to Alastair Reed, who had been my colleague at uh, Sarah Lawrence when he taught poetry and I taught history. What a fuss there was when he went up to Yale and gave a lecture and uh, indicated that one of his um, pieces in The New Yorker, that several of them had been... Um, not fictionalized, but that he had drawn together a number of experiences. And um, it wasn't, they weren't quite as represented on the page. And I remember the glee that people had in knifing, putting the shiv into the New Yorker because they claimed always that they had the greatest fact-checking apparatus in the country. I wonder what would happen now if the New York Times book review or some similarly distinguished um, publication or non-publication, really try to find out what people do expect, what they assume from what they're reading. You're making some assumptions. I certainly am. I'd like to know what it is. We poll everything else. Why don't we really find out what people feel they are doing when they read a book, when they read the New York Times, uh, when they read an op-ed piece, when they read a blog, be an interesting. Uh... It would be, and so interesting. You mentioned the Alistair Reed case because I've thought about that too. And I, if I remember, one of the words that came up in that context was composite. He'd made composite portraits, and you thought, well, here was this wonderful writer. I mean, Alistair Reed was a superb writer. I Man, as a poet translator, also superb kind of travel journalist. Mm -hmm. The New Yorker really specialized in. And um, the idea that somehow he had betrayed his calling, you know, seemed very presumptuous at the time. But now you're right. There, there is this question of authenticity and accuracy is probably the big word. And it would be interesting to know what readers say, particularly Dick, when you're talking about a time when so many people say they don't trust anything they read in any newspaper anyway. They, they, right, they go to their own news sites rather than read a paper like the New York Times. They have half a dozen blogs they get their news from, or they kind of mix and match different um, uh, news sources and items to create their own sort of stew of what's going to inform them from day to day. And the, on the one hand, it's very sophisticated in, in this way uh, that, that people... Or, and even some might say, slight, if, if skeptical or even cynical, the assumption that there's no one who will really deliver the truth to you. And so it then does become odd when you have the cases of authors of books who are held so accountable. I think one reason, I'm guessing, is it's almost always books that have been very successful or been very well received. So there's this idea that well, someone has profited in an unseemly way. That, um, that with, at least with a newspaper, the, whatever skepticism people have about it, they'll attribute to, oh, 
the liberal bias of the times, if they think there is one, or of particular reporters. But I don't think there's an, an idea necessarily that people are hugely profiting from it. Somehow the idea of the author, the guy with the big book who's been on Oprah, or who's on the bestseller list for week after week or year after year, that, um, that he's pulled a fast one on us. And it's probably true that, to some extent, some of them have. You know, there's this, the, that showmanship that goes into writing an extremely successful book, not necessarily a great book or a lasting book, but a very successful one, one that seems to tap into public appetites and desires. You do wonder what the relationship is between that particular author and the reader. Now, if we did the poll, administered the poll, you suggest, see, then my question would be, well, people will tell us one thing, but do they really mean it? Do they even understand completely what they are saying when they tell us, I expect that book to be 100% accurate? The same problem one would raise with every poll, with every yes. question. That's right, yeah. And uh, whether it's Obama's uh, birthright or whatever it may be. Uh, does this, we just a minute left or so, uh, are you more comfortable with this um, um, picture of the relationship between author and publisher and reader? More comfortable than... Than you might have been... Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Um, I just think it's kind of the way it is for the moment, and that, that might change. Um, I guess it doesn't seem to me that... It's fruitful for me even to evaluate it in that way. I, I just try to understand it, try to make sense of it. And, I, and as you say, I may be entirely wrong. I'm making, I am making a lot of assumptions here. Um, one of the surprises to me about uh, our culture in general, one of the great happy surprises, is just how much reading there is going on altogether. Remember the death and decline of reading only Indeed. years ago? And people now read voraciously. Too good a point to leave at that, but the program is over. I lied to you. We don't have that much time left, but if you would sit where you are, let's do another program. Absolutely. My pleasure. Sam Tannenhaus, thank you so much for joining me today on The Open Mind. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time as well. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive or 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.